0: So please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 2 as we continue our series through John's Gospel. This evening we come to chapter 2 verse 23, to these three verses that close out chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's important to understand the nature of true faith. There is a certain level of belief belief in quotes, belief in Jesus that can be called belief or faith, even though it falls short of the real thing. Case in point in verse 23, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Similarly, Nicodemus in the very next chapter, chapter three, will address Jesus in verse two with words that sound an awful lot like faith. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Were these people who saw Jesus' signs? Was Nicodemus, were these people true believers? A close look at the text indicates to us that the answer is no. Well, how someone can believe and not have true faith may seem confusing, so let me explain by way of analogy. Suppose there is a company that makes cables for zip lines And this company is trying to convince me to use one of their cables to zip line across the Grand Canyon. And as part of their propaganda, they tell me all about what they do as a company. They take me on a tour of their manufacturing facility where the cable is made. They describe to me in great detail the process by which these cables are made. And they especially work hard to convince me that they make strong cables. And after having heard their sales pitch, I readily admit to believing certain things. I believe they are a legitimate company that does indeed make cables. I believe that they are manufacturing good, strong cables. I believe their manufacturing process is sound and that as far as cables go, they know what they are doing. But as for the faith of entrusting my life to their cable as it is strung for miles across the Grand Canyon, I don't think so. I don't believe in their product well enough to bet my life on it in that kind of extreme situation. And there are some analogies that can be taken from this illustration that relate to believing in Jesus Christ. Scripture as you see, clear that a person can believe in Jesus in a way that is not the same thing as believing in Jesus with real saving faith. For example, take note of the language that's used in James 2 verse 19, where we read this, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Notice the Bible says the demons believe. Now it doesn't say they have saving faith, of course not. In fact, the demons shuddering indicates that they don't like what they believe. They know the truth and in that sense, believe it, while at the same time hating and dreading what that truth means for them. Demons don't have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have any, any inclination at all to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible does say they believe. They believe certain things about God. They know many truths about God that they are convinced are true, And we find a similar situation here, similar scenario in our text this evening. And uh, I want to take a moment to explain the context of what is happening. Last time we saw that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And when he went to the temple, he saw his father's house being desecrated by businessmen who had turned the temple into a house of trade. And he overturned their tables and drove them out. That was a very bold move, and we are not surprised that temple officials soon came and confronted Jesus, and they asked for a sign to prove that he had the authority to do what he did. And Jesus replied to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the Jews thought Jesus was referring to the physical temple and didn't understand that he was talking about the temple of his body That was raised on the third day after his crucifixion. John reports in chapter 2, verse 22, that years later, when Jesus did rise from the dead, quote, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's at this point that John's gospel turns to talking about others who were there in Jerusalem who witnessed Jesus doing signs. Remember that just before the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus had performed the sign of changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And uh, John's gospel will highlight a total of six more signs in the section of chapters 1 through 12 for a total of seven. And though these seven particular signs are highlighted in John's gospel, According to verse 23, the first of our verses that we're considering this evening, it says there, he performed other signs. We're not told what they were, but we are told he performed other signs. And what is being brought to our attention is that people believed in Jesus on the basis of these signs. Nevertheless, their belief was not true saving faith, not true saving belief. Well, how do we know? Well, because of what verses 24 and 25 tell us. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What this is telling us is that Jesus was able to look right into the hearts of these people there in Jerusalem who believed in his name and he knew that they were not true believers. But that explains why, as we are told in verse 24, he did not entrust himself to him to them. There's a wordplay really going on here for the very same word for faith is being used twice in verses 23 and 24. English translations kind of hide this, this reality, but it says, many believed, but Jesus on his part did not himself believe in them. That would be a very literal translation. Jesus had, has just spoken of his disciples as men of faith Not that they immediately had strong or great faith. In fact, verse 22 is very honest about how their understanding of Jesus and his ministry as it was revealed in Scripture and through his words, their understanding grew over time. Nevertheless, they were true men of faith. And we can deduce that Jesus was able to entrust himself to these six disciples for they are contrasted with many in Jerusalem who believed in his name but to whom Jesus was not willing to entrust himself. As for these others, he knew that they could not be relied upon to follow him like the six disciples. So I've taken as the theme of these verses Jesus not entrusting himself, and we'll consider these verses under the three points of what. That is what it means that Jesus did not entrust himself, And uh, if you have the outline you're looking at uh, this evening, I've switched points two and three. We're going to deal with how assessed, as our second point, how it is that Jesus knew not to entrust himself to certain people, and then third, why. Why Jesus did not entrust himself to those who believed in his name. So we begin with what? This wording of Jesus not entrusting himself to certain people is a very interesting choice of words. And again, this response is in contrast to the relationship that he had with his six closest disciples. And basically, the idea is that while many in Jerusalem believed in him, Jesus did not believe in them. Um, Suppose I am a whitewater rafting guide, and the tourists that I take with me down the river have put their faith in me. They trust that I'm going to know what to do to keep them safe and to make sure that they have a good time. But what if while going down the river, I get injured or fall in? Well, I'm not going to put my trust in the clients that I have to know what to do to help me. I would not entrust my safety to tourists who have probably never even run whitewater before. And this is similar to Jesus not entrusting himself to the people there in Jerusalem, even though they claimed to believe in him. As a river guide, I may encounter clients who claim to have whitewater rafting experience, but I'm still not going to entrust myself to them because I don't know whether they really do have experience or not. Now, it would be different if I were to see them in action or if they actually rescued me, then I might entrust myself to them. After all, I would have reason to believe that they are who they say they are. Jesus was not willing to, to entrust himself to many people there in Jerusalem, regardless of their claim to be believers. And practically speaking, this means several things. First of all, Jesus did not trust his own person to those in Jerusalem who believed in his name. You entrust yourself to those who you know love you, to those who you know are going to care for you, Jesus did not consider the people who believed in his name to be reliable and trustworthy. He was not willing to entrust his safety and well-being to them. So that, first of all. And then second, it could be that the idea of Jesus not entrusting himself to them is that he did not commit himself to them. That's the translation offered by the King James and a few other English translations, and there's validity to it. For to believe in something, to put your faith in something can include the idea of committing oneself to it. If I truly trust in the cable that has been strung across the Grand Canyon, I would show my trust by committing myself to using it and actually ziplining across. And so it could be that Jesus is saying he's not willing to commit himself to these residents of Jerusalem, which means he's not willing to promise them anything in terms of salvation or or future blessings. He's not willing to commit himself to being their master or teacher. He's not committing himself to fellowship and communion and ongoing communication with them. And this perspective is evident by the fact that he soon left Jerusalem and did not continue contact with them. So basically... That Jesus was not willing to entrust or commit himself to these believers indicates that he did not reckon them to be true disciples. Jesus gives himself always and fully only to those who truly trust in him. This brings us to a consideration of what our text says concerning how Jesus knew that so many in Jerusalem were not worthy of his entrusting or committing himself to them. Verse 24 reads, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because, and that is the key word that shows the connection, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And so our text explains very clearly why Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The reason was that he knew them and not just about them, but he knew what was in them, which means he knew their hearts. That's an amazing claim, is it not, that the Apostle John here is making about Jesus? And John is not just guessing at this, it's, just not, it's not just simply his opinion, but he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what is being revealed to us is Jesus having the divine attribute of omniscience. That's a big word. Omniscience is a big word that refers to knowing all things, and it's something that only God can do. Now, we're not omniscient, but we can know a lot of things, and the way we know, come to know things is by study or by experience. Little babies come to understand that gravity is a real thing by falling down, and as a child gets older and learns to read, he begins to learn many more things, a whole new world opens up. Still, it's one thing to read about something in a book and another thing to actually do it. And the more life experiences we have, the more we learn about ourselves, about our world, about our God. But what becomes clear is that we are always learning. We never come to a complete knowledge of all things like God has. Take, for example, our knowledge of gravity. We know it exists. We know what it does because things fall. From a study of science, we know that it's related to mass. But how it does what it does evades our understanding. We find the same scenario going on as we try to understand life itself. We can define it according to certain characteristics. We can recognize it when it exists. But where does life come from? What is it as to its very essence? And the more we know, the more we realize that there is a realm of knowledge beyond us that belongs only to God. God's knowledge is beyond our own. God knows everything that is going on in the world as well as knowing how everything works. He knows why things work. Think of it. He knows why things work the way they do in our world because he's the creator of all things. Isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14 says, "'Who has directed the spirit of the Lord "'or as his counselor has informed him? "'With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding "'and who taught him in the path of justice "'and taught him knowledge?' And informed him of the way of understanding. And the implied answer is no one. No one has taught God. God is all-knowing. It's part of who he is. He has complete understanding of the world that he created. Naturally, then, God knows everything that is going on in the world. He knows it down to the very details. Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Psalm 147 verse 4 says, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. You know how many stars there are? We can actually only guess. The number grows as we develop more powerful telescopes and can look farther into space. And we are told by the latest scientific findings that That in our Milky Way galaxy, there are between 100 and 400 billion stars. Well, that's a pretty big range, isn't it? That tells me that this is basically a guesstimate. But clearly, the number of stars is astronomical, pun intended. And over against our estimates, God knows, think of it, the name of every star which means he knows the exact number of stars in the Milky Way. And can you imagine counting 400 billion stars and then naming each one? But we are only then at this point talking about one galaxy. It's estimated that there are between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And did you catch that word, observable? This is an estimate for the observable universe. The estimate of what we have been able to see through telescopes so far. Meanwhile, God knows how many galaxies there are, how many stars in each galaxy, and within the Milky Way galaxy, all about the Earth and its inhabitants, down to the smallest detail. Job 28, verse 24 says, For he looks to the ends of the Earth and sees everything under the heavens, every single fact of what is going on in the universe. Is known by God. What I think is even more astounding is that God knows our hearts. The Lord Jesus knows our thoughts, He he knows our desires, our motives, our plans. He knows who you are, He knows what you are about. It's amazing enough that He knows everything that you do, outwardly speaking, but He also knows what you think about. Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2 O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, all of the outward things, it also says you understand my thoughts from afar. God's knowledge of all things regarding his creation, including his knowledge of what is going on in our minds, things that no one else can see or know, that's called omniscience. Notice how our text tells us that Jesus has this attribute, this divine attribute. It says in verse 24, Jesus knew all people. Now, if you are reading verse 24 for the first time, you might anticipate what John is going to say this way. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew them. That's what we might expect. And if that was written, Jesus' knowledge would really be no big deal. It would be saying Jesus knew who these people were. And there might be any number of reasonable explanations for how this is so. Perhaps he had spent enough time with them to know them, even to the point of knowing that they were not people to whom he could entrust himself. So perhaps experience had proven who they were. But that's not what the text says. First, it says that Jesus knew all people. So not just the people there in Jerusalem. No, Jesus' knowledge is broader than that. A general principle is here set forth, namely that Jesus knows all people. He knows everyone. So how did Jesus come to know that these people were not to be trusted? Well, John anticipates the expected answer that there were witnesses, perhaps, who told Jesus what these people were like. For example, if you apply for a job, you are likely going to be asked to give references. A potential employer is wanting the names and contact of information of people who know you and can testify to your character and abilities. This is your employer's way of getting to know you. Now, of course, it's an indirect way. You can directly testify about yourself, but how is the employer going to know that what you say is true? So references are a way of getting at the truth. And this is what we would naturally think is how Jesus came to know that those who believed in him were not sincere followers. He must have heard eyewitness testimony from other residents in Jerusalem who told Jesus something like this, look these people claim to believe in you but they have a different agenda than what you think. They are not who they say they are. If you think about it such Eyewitness testimony could really only be given if eyewitnesses heard these professing believers say something questionable off to the side or saw them do something that contradicted what they were saying. We can't know what's inside a person's heart. We can't know a person's motives except by how they act and talk. (coughs) And John tells us that this is not what happened in this case. Jesus' knowledge of these people who believed in his name did not come from hearing the testimony of those who knew him well. The simple but profound explanation is that he himself knew what was in man. In man, in his heart, in man's heart. Jesus didn't need outside help from others to know his audience. He knew what was going on inside of them. No one can escape his penetrating gaze and hide something from him and as jesus looked inside these professing believers he saw that things were not right he saw things that prompted him to not entrust himself to them what an amazing knowledge this is that jesus had the greek word used refers to a knowledge that is born of intimate experience with people knowing how they act but also the workings of their hearts It's a knowledge of discernment that has to do with Jesus knowing who are his own and who are not. Later in John 10, Jesus will use the very same word when he says, I know my own and my own know me. He knows who has genuine love for him. He knows those who hear his voice and are willing to follow him as committed disciples. Which brings us then to a consideration of why Jesus was not willing to entrust himself to them. Now, we aren't told why specifically, but the reasons for why Jesus was not willing to entrust himself to them have to do with the fact that their faith was inadequate. It was not a true and living faith. I'm reminded of what people refer to as the three types of faith, or perhaps it would be better to call them the three parts of faith. study of scripture reveals that the words faith and belief mean different things in different contexts. So, notitia, as a Latin word, refers to the content of faith and brings out that faith is always in something tangible, or in the case of Jesus, in a person. For example, the Bible sometimes refers to the body of Christian doctrine that we believe in as the Christian faith. That's how the word faith is used in Jude 3, when we are called to contend for the faith. So, there's notitia, and then there's a census, um, which refers to the conviction of that what you know is true, such as the belief of the demons in God. It's, just, it's not just knowing about what you believe, but being convinced that what you believe is true. And then we have fiducia, which is personal trust and reliance. And putting these three aspects of faith all together, we can see that those demons who believe in God, they have the first two, notitia and a census. They know facts about God and Jesus, and they know that they are true but of course they lack the personal trust of fiducia for they refuse to put any personal trust in God. I see a parallel in in those three Latin words to three aspects of the heart. We, we speak of the heart involving the mind and the desires and the will and these three must all be in play if there is to be true faith. The mind is involved since faith has content Um, faith involves believing that certain facts are true that would be notitia and a census and again demons have this aspect of faith but to believe in facts must be added the right desires and convictions to the belief that Jesus is the son of God needs to be the desire and conviction that you want to be in fellowship with God and under his authority and especially for Jesus to be your savior from sin Part of faith is the conviction that you are a sinner deserving the judgment of God. And as part of true faith, you must also have the conviction that you need Jesus to be your Savior. And the conviction that he is able to be your Savior because of his perfect obedience and substitutionary death. You must be convinced that his death on the cross was a substitutionary death by which he suffered the judgment of God that your sins deserve. And you must be convinced that by receiving him as savior, the merits of his substitutionary death will be put to your account and will make you right with God. Of course, this conviction aspect of faith (coughs) regarding sin and the need of Christ, the demons do not have. In fact, their desire is to cast off God's authority. The conviction is they don't want fellowship with God. They don't want Jesus as savior. And then there's the other aspect of the heart involved in true faith. To the right knowledge and to the right convictions needs to be added. An act of the will where you make a decision to personally trust, and rely on Christ as your Savior from sin. In other words, it's not enough to just know the facts of who Jesus is and even of yourself as being a sinner. It's not enough to feel spiritual need for Jesus to be your Savior. There must be an actual resting upon him to be your Savior that's manifested by asking him to forgive your sins in prayer and, make, and asking him to make you right with God, asking him to grant you eternal life by grace on the basis of his saving work. That Jesus did not entrust himself to these professing believers in Jerusalem was because he saw inadequacies in their faith. By inadequacies, I don't mean weaknesses, but by inadequacies, I mean fatal flaws things we're missing that are required of true faith. And this is an important distinction to keep in mind so that you don't lose heart, for not one of us has perfect faith. Perfect faith would mean having a perfect knowledge of ourselves, perfect knowledge of Christ uh, and of the gospel. Perfect faith would mean having perfect convictions, where we utterly, with all of our being, hate sin and love Jesus with all of our being, and consistently and always, And perfect faith would mean always going to Jesus right away with our sin in order to seek his forgiveness and then trusting him without any wavering to forgive those sins. We don't have perfect faith, this side of heaven. We don't have a perfect knowledge. We have a growing knowledge. We don't have perfect convictions, but sometimes we find sin attractive and we give in to temptation and we sometimes find the worship of Jesus a challenge. We don't always love him enough. To obey him like we should, and after we have given in to temptation, we don't always repent right away of our sins. And even when we do, we sometimes find ourselves doubting Christ's willingness to forgive us. What I'm de- what I'm describing is weak faith. That's not what Jesus saw in those who believed in His name. What He saw were people who lacked a full-orbed faith. They said the right things. They spoke of trust in Jesus. That they believed in his name means they acknowledge him to be, yes, he's a great teacher, perhaps even a prophet, perhaps even the Messiah. But they had not fully entrusted themselves to him. They had not committed themselves to Jesus as true disciples will. And As we shall see in the course of John's gospel, there were many who believed on the basis of the signs that Jesus performed that he was of God. But even the, the demons acknowledged Jesus to be the son of God and he even acknowledged his authority over them. But none of the demons and very few of the people in Jerusalem actually received Jesus as savior from sin by repenting of their sins and asking him for forgiveness. And Jesus, as he looked into the hearts of those who outwardly said the right things, who believed in his name, he saw people who did not genuinely love him as the son of God and divine savior. As time will tell, as the gospel of John will reveal, many of these people were looking to Jesus to provide earthly comforts. They were looking to Jesus to be a political deliverer. And when he fails to be what they want, they will kill him in hate. And Jesus knew these things. He knew that they were not friends whose love could be trusted. He knew that they were not true disciples to whom he could commit himself as savior he knew what was in them belief in his claims to be of god but not a loving trust in him as a true disciple has so what about you right now jesus knows you he doesn't need any references he knows what is in you And Jesus is not looking for perfect beliefs and convictions, but he is looking for sincere ones. He is looking for people whose faith is beyond mere belief in facts. It's not enough to even know that you are a sinner needing Jesus and that he helps sinners. He wants people of genuine faith who go to him, humbly receiving him as Savior. Disciples who want to learn from him and who serve him out of love. Belief in his name, that's a start. But do you love him because you appreciate his love for you, dying on the cross for your sins? You see, it's not enough to say, Well, I know the cable is strong. It's not enough to say, Jesus is strong enough to save sinners. Faith in a cable means you place your life on the line and you actually zip line across the canyon. And true faith in Jesus means you place your life on the line looking to him alone for salvation, pleading for the forgiveness of your sins, submitting yourself to him, trusting in him alone to make you right with God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing revelation here of who our savior is, that he is indeed the word, that he is indeed your son, that he would be able to know all people, and to know what is in us. And Father, as we stand before you, we pray, Lord, that we would recognize your authority over us, that we would recognize our need for Christ as our Savior. But Father, more than that, that we each one would actually go to you, that we would actually go to our Savior, asking, seeking the forgiveness of our sins, truly relying upon him alone for the salvation that we need. Father, we recognize from this passage that there are many who just profess faith but who do not have true faith lord you know all things it's difficult for us to discern these things um, but father you have revealed through christ that indeed this problem exists and so father we pray that we would be ourselves mindful of what true faith involves and that also as we uh, raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the lord that we would be aware of the fact that they're is false faith and uh, father we pray that we would therefore warn and continue to teach from your word what true faith is and we pray that you would grant true faith to many um, to to our children uh, to those in our congregation here may all have true faith we pray we pray that as we minister to those outside the church many of who have been involved with church and who have some concept of faith lord we pray that we also would be able to help them discern their own hearts through the work of your holy spirit that they would not be putting their faith in simply um, knowing the right things but father that they would have genuine faith in the lord jesus christ we recognize how deceitful um, the heart can be and how um The devil uh, desires to make people content with with false faith. So, Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would grant deliverance from this deception. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.